You're listening to the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions. The Move to Value podcast is dedicated to helping healthcare providers understand and make the transition into value-based care. We do this through conversations and the sharing of innovative ideas with practitioners, experts, and leaders throughout the healthcare industry. Our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team by cultivating a value-oriented, compassionate, and health-aligned community. In this episode of the Move to Value podcast, we continue with our recap of the Move to Value Summit Nursing Edition, which was held on December 6th, 2023. Today we hear part one of the presentation from Chess Director of Pharmacy, Rebecca Grandy, who shares information, updates, and reminders around diabetes medication management. So the first thing we're gonna talk about is sort of a reminder of when you think about someone with diabetes, there are lots of things beyond the A1C that are even more important than the A1C. And I think for me, especially transitioning to the value-based world where you know, I'm thinking about, are they adherent to their medicine? What is their A1C? Are they on a statin? Sometimes it's easy to get lost in that big picture of really taking care of the person. So I want to spend some time on that. Um, I'm going to spend some time just talking about the 2023 diabetes guidelines. Um, The new ones for 2024 should be out any day now. And so I don't anticipate any major changes. So I want to review some of those things with you. And then there are two classes of medicines, SGLT2s and um, GLP1s and GIPs that I want to spend a lot of time, sort of the bulk of the conversation around. And then lastly, after someone gets a prescription for these medicines, what happens next? So thinking about how do they get the medicine? How do they afford it? How do they remember to take it? And should they be checking their blood sugar? Because that's a really interesting sort of controversial topic. Um, So we'll jump right in. We have this thing called Slido. This is my first time using it. But the way this works is if if you have a cell phone with you, if you will take a picture of that QR code, It'll bring this question up for you, and you can vote on what answer you think is right. And then at the end, we'll revisit the questions to see um, if what I did was clear in explaining the different concepts. So when you do this QR code, um, please answer this question. Which of the following has the greatest impact on morbidity and mortality in patients with diabetes? So is it blood pressure control, smoking cessation, lipid reduction or cholesterol management, or lowering their blood glucose? Okay, so I feel like I have something I could possibly teach you all today. So blood glucose control was 61%, then lipids, then blood pressure, then smoking cessation. Okay, this is great. Okay, so when back when this article came out called Lending a Hand to Patients with Diabetes, a Simple Way to Communicate Treatment Goals, um, one of the medical residents at the family practice um, where I worked at um, did this as part of his journal club. And ever since he did it, it's just always been an easy way for me to remember kind of all the different things I should be thinking through when I'm caring for someone with diabetes. So this particular article came out in 2014. A few things are outdated. A few things are a little controversial, and so I'll point those out. But when you look at this, um, you want to start with your thumb. 
So your thumb is actually where you can make the most impact with people who have diabetes. And so believe it or not, it's actually smoking cessation. So smoking cessation has some of the biggest effects on mortality and um, morbidity when it comes to someone with diabetes. It's not their A1C, it's actually whether or not they smoke. And so when you look at this slide, and you look at the thumb and it says smoking cessation, decreased mortality, there's this thing that says NNT equals 11 over 10 years. So what does that mean? NNT stands for number needed to treat. So it's basically how many patients do we need to have an intervention on, whether that's the medicine or the program. I have a friend, my cat likes to help me present. Um, it's basically how many patients do we need to treat to get one person to benefit. And so for smoking cessation, we need to treat 11 patients for one person to benefit from mortality. So we're preventing them from dying over a 10 year period. Um, I So when we go through the different fingers, you'll see the number needed to treat for different interventions. And I think it's always good to know, okay, is that a good number? Is that a bad number? What's it relative to? So in the medical world, when you're thinking about an intervention, whether it's a medicine or a procedure that has sort of standard risk, a number needed to treat less than 10 is actually really good. Um, the other thing that I think helps put it in perspective, does anyone want to guess what the number needed to treat for one person to benefit for aspirin is? So when you give some aspirin to someone who's never had a heart attack or stroke, which historically has been done a lot. Anyone want to guess what that number needed to treat is? You can put it in the chat. 333. Now, let me repeat what I said. For someone who's never had a heart attack or stroke, you have to treat 333 people with aspirin to get one person to benefit. So when you look at some of these numbers needed to treat, they look pretty good. Um, I could talk all day about primary prevention with aspirin. But anyway, just to give you some perspective about these numbers. So smoking cessation makes a huge difference for our patients. Um, the next one is blood pressure control. So when you look there, mortality, right? So whether someone lives or dies, 15 people over a 10-year period. To decrease any kind of complication, six over a 10-year period. Um, the middle finger there, which I'll go ahead and highlight, um, if you'll click the next slide, please. Um, the middle finger there, this was before some of our newer medicines came out, but metformin is still a really good medicine. Metformin has benefits to our body beyond blood glucose lowering. And so some of those other benefits that metformin has can decrease mortality and decrease complications. Now, as you see, when we start talking about some of the newer medicines, if they were to redo this article now, I think in addition to metformin, they would also put SGLT2s which later I'll tell you what some of those medicines are, and GLP-1s. So when I'm thinking about someone with diabetes, I also think through, okay, what medicine for this patient treats diabetes, but also has another benefit beyond lowering their blood sugar? And then as you can see, um, the ring finger there is lipid reduction. So, you know, this is why we harp on statins all the time. You know, for most of our patients, they're going to be the best choice because you need about 10 patients to be treated um, over a 10-year period to get a decrease in cardiac events. It extends life, but not just life, but quality of life, right? And then the pinky, this one's a little controversial. But interestingly enough, glycemic control or controlling someone's blue, blood glucose has 
debatably no effect on mortality, so whether someone lives or dies. And then this article also says no clinically relevant complications. I do not agree with that part. Neither did several folks who put in commentary to this. And so this was from the American Family um, Physician article. Because when you think about glycemic control, and I think about controlling someone's blood sugars, in my mind, I'm helping protect their eyes from retinopathy. I'm helping protect their kidneys. And those things are important. may not be life and death but definitely affects quality of life. So I show this just to say we talk a lot about blood sugar, and it is important, and it's a lot of what the quality measures are about, but I don't want us to lose perspective on all the other things that we need to do to take care of people with diabetes. Next slide. And so, you know, I just, those were just about the medicines. And so when I think about sort of that, you know, patient-centered approach, you know, like Shannon said, having the patient as the MVP, having nursing on the team, having social work on the team, when you back up even further and think about that patient, I mean, it's way more than just about the clinical care, right? So as y'all know, the clinical care that we provide only impacts about 20% of that person's health outcomes. It's all these other things really when we're holistically caring for someone. So as you can see here, this actually comes from the 2023 Diabetes Care, so the ADA standards, the American Diabetes Association, and they really wanna emphasize that whole person care. So thinking about the individual patient characteristics, you know, and how those impact our choice of treatment, whether that's medication or lifestyle, um, using shared decision-making, having smart goals, um, and then after you implement that plan, really providing ongoing support, monitoring, reviewing the plan. Um, so this section, again, I just really wanted to make sure as we dive into the weeds, some of the blood glucose-lowering medicines and A1C recommendations that we don't forget about that whole person picture. Next slide. Okay, so we're going to dive into the 2023 um, treatment guideline updates. And like I said, these new guidelines should actually come out in the next couple of weeks, but I don't expect major changes. Um, but I do have a question for you. So according to the most recent guidelines, the 2023 guidelines, metformin is still first-line therapy for all patients with diabetes. Okay, it looks like we're going to land on about 75% of people saying true and 24% of people saying false. So let's kind of dive into those, and I'll tell you whether or not that's true or false at the end. Um, I actually really like the American Diabetes Association guidelines. So when I think about all the chronic conditions, hypertension, lipids, diabetes, most of them, you know, we have to wait years for new guidelines to come out. The ADA is like clockwork, comes out the end of December for the following year. And the other thing that they've started doing, which I really appreciate, is if there's anything significant that happens within the course of the year, they'll actually update them in real time on their website. And so when you read through this slide, it says it's a living document. And that's what that means is they update it in real time. And so as we go through the next few slides, some of the slides are terrible slides. The font is so small, you're not going to be able to read it. And my intent was not that you can read it, but just to let you know what's available in those guidelines. So if like you're on a team providing care for folks with diabetes, just to know what resources you have available, because there's some really cool and informative and easy to use charts and pictures um, in these guidelines. And these are available for anybody um, on the website. You can go get them um, for free. They're in a PDF. 
Okay, so kind of thinking about first-line therapy. So these are actually guidelines, um, snippets from the guidelines that I want to focus on. And as we talk through the medicine, sort of in the third portion of the presentation, um, we'll go into some more specifics. So um, a person-centered approach should guide the choice of pharmacological agents. So in the past, what the guidelines have said is we use diet and exercise and metformin. And then after we use those things, then it's kind of a free for all as to what you use. You know, there were like 10 different choices after that. Um, now they're much more directed when you think about someone's comorbidities. So they really want you to think about cardiovascular effects. So some of our newer medicines have positive effects on your cardiovascular system and your kidneys. Some of them per beyond their blood glucose lowering actually affect the kidneys. And then there's been a big focus on helping someone either maintain their weight or lose weight. Some of the medicines that we have cause weight gain because of the way they work. Some of them can cause weight loss. And so those things that I've highlighted there have really been an emphasis in these guidelines over the past few years. And so you can see there, I went just to kind of orient, when you look at that 9.8 and you look at the end there, it has an E. So what that E means is that's just expert opinion. This is just the opinions of the people who wrote the guidelines, right? Like this is the way we think you should do it. Um, but when you look at 9.9, .9, so this next recommendation, um, so for those people who have type 2 diabetes that have established cardiovascular disease or are at high risk, have established kidney disease or heart failure, then we need to consider a sodium glucose co-transport 2 inhibitor. So from here on out, we're going to call that an SGLT2 because it's a lot easier to say. Or a glucagon-like peptide 1 or GLP-1 um, receptor agonist. And so we're going to talk about all the names, the generic names, brand names of what those are later. But I'll point this out because in the past, where, like I said, it's always been lifestyle metformin, and then we kind of figure it out from there. That's not what we do anymore. From here on out, what we do is we think through, does this person have heart disease or are they high risk? Do they already have kidney disease? Do they have heart failure? And if the answer is yes to one of those three, you actually are going to go kind of a different route. Okay, so this is one of those slides that you're not going to be able to read, but I am going to um, show you each portion of it. So this is sort of the decision tree around which medicines that um, you're going to recommend for your patients. And so when you look at these, they're actually divided up between those disease states that I talked about on the left side. And then on the right side, it's all around weight management. So again, a big focus on weight management because of some of the newer toolkits, you know, some of the newer drugs in our toolkit that we have. Next slide. Okay, so this is a little small, but we're gonna walk through it. But this is where you say, okay, does my, does my patient have heart disease? Do they have heart failure or do they have kidney disease? Some of the newer medicines that we have can actually protect against those things. So if you see in the blue, this is ASCBD, so we already know they have heart disease or they're at high risk. And so for high risk, things like you would expect, right? Obesity, hypertension, smoking, um, do they have cholesterol or do they have albuminuria? So do they already have protein in their kidneys? Because that actually is an independent indicator of high risk of cardiovascular disease. So when you look there and you know they have those risk factors, you can either do a GLP-1 um, so things like GLP-1s are semaglutide, which is ozempic, or um, 
let's see, what's was another one? Um, terzepatide is a combination one, but that's Mountain So we'll talk specifics about those later. But they're injectables. Um, they have a lot of great benefits, but they're expensive. So we're going to talk some about that. Or you can do an SGLT2. So that's things like um, the brand names when you think about them would be like um, Farsiga, Invokana, Jardiance, those medicines. They're pills. They're also expensive, but they're really good, and, all, and most of them have benefit in um, cardiovascular disease. So in addition to lowering your blood sugar, because we know lowering your blood sugar can help with complications like retinopathy, kidney disease, but they also protect your heart and can prevent heart attacks and strokes. And then when you move over to the red, that's for heart failure. And so... Um, for people, and this is true for reduced ejection fraction. So for those people who have an ejection fraction of less than 40, there's benefit, but there's also benefit in patients who have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, so greater than 40. And so for some of our medicines, even like ACE inhibitors and things, that's not necessarily true, but it's true for these um, SGLT2s. So that again, the brand names, that's like your um, Farsiga, Invokana, Jardiance, those medicines, great for heart failure because of the way they work, which we'll talk a little bit about. And then even some of these medicines can protect your kidneys, which I think is pretty cool, right? So if you have someone that has a GFR less than 60 or they have albuminuria, so that's that microalbumin, you know, that we're checking for one of our diabetes measures, then um, you know, some of the some of the SGLT2s and some of the GLP1s can benefit. And so I show you all this just to say, if your patients have any of those conditions, metformin's not necessarily first line. Is it wrong? No, it's a good medicine. I really like metformin, has a long history. It's cheap. It works well. It may have some mortality benefit, but these other medicines we know have even greater benefit in those patient populations. Okay, and so this is the other half of that um, decision tree around medicines. And I show you this just because, again, now there's more focus on weight management, either maintaining weight and not having someone gain or lowering their weight, which a lot of these medicines do. And so we're going to kind of jump into that. And um, it's been really interesting because of the weight loss potential of some of these medicines. As you all probably know, there's been drug shortages and it can kind of throw off our diabetes measurements. And so we'll talk some of the nuances about that when we get to the actual diabetes meds. Next slide. Okay. Can't read this. And we're going to walk through it, though, but we're only going to cover two classes of medicines. So we're going to talk about your GLP-1 receptor agonist, and we're going to talk about your SGLT-2s because those are sort of the ones that are highlighted in the new guidelines. But for any medicine you can, any class of medicine you can think of for diabetes, this is a beautiful chart that's in the guidelines that talks about how, how effective is it in relationship to other medicines? Does it cause low blood sugars? Does it cause weight gain? What are the heart kidney benefits is it only oral or do I have to inject it and then there's really good clinical considerations and I think they're really practical ones so we'll walk through some of these and I can just share personal experiences that I've had in the clinic with different medicines next slide um, cost, you know, it's always an interesting thing. I used to get asked all the time, like, well, how much is this med going to cost this patient? And I'm like, you know what? I really have no idea. It depends on their insurance. And so medications, um, 
you know, it could be a really, really expensive medicine, but depending on that person's insurance design, which usually we can figure out for the patient, it may be really, you know, very affordable. And we'll talk about some of those pricing considerations with some of these newer medicines, because I think it's important that when we're prescribing them or have patients on them, we think about the consequences um, of the cost. Okay, so we're going to jump into those SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 and GIP agonists and review some of that. So we have a, another knowledge check. So terzepatide, and um, in case you know brand names better, that one, the name of it's Jaro for diabetes. Um, the weight loss version or for obesity just came out last week, I think, and it's called ZepBound. So how does that one work? Does it slow gastric emptying? Does it increase your insulin sensitivity? Does it increase satiety? Or does it do all of the above? Okay, so before we jump into those, I'm actually going to talk about SGLT2 inhibitor, inhibitors or sodium glucose transport inhibitors. And like Shannon said, like I like information but I like to understand the why behind that information. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how these medicines work. And the only reason I'm doing it is because, at least for me, I learn best with stories. It just helps me understand what the side effects are and sort of some of the counseling points that we have. So SGLT2 inhibitors, again, the brand names of those are Farcia, Invokana, Jardiance. They're the ones that have evidence for protecting your heart. They're the ones that have evidence for your kidneys and for um, heart failure. So they kind of hit all three. Um, and so the way they work is they alter how our kidneys reabsorb glucose. So as y'all know, let's say my blood sugar, a patient's blood sugar is 500. One of the ways that we get rid of that excess blood glucose is by peeing it out, right? Glucosuria. So you pee it out because you have this extra glucose, but usually the body doesn't do that. I believe the number's around 250, right? Your blood sugar has to be pretty high for your body to do that, but it is a mechanism for us to get out that extra sugar. Well, with these medicines, what they do is they work inside your kidney to actually, in the nephrons, to actually lower that threshold. So instead of now our blood sugar has to be 250, before we start peeing out the sugar, it only has to be around 150. And so there's some really nice things that come from that because as you all know, where sugar goes, the water goes. And so they work as a diuretic. So if you're peeing out more sugar, you're gonna pee out more water. So that diuresis part. And so when we think about some counseling points, we'll need to think about that, right? Because they're causing our body to get rid of water. Um, the other thing is because they're so dependent on our kidneys to actually be effective when we look at renal dosing um, and like, oh, well, if it's, you know, someone's um, EGFR is less than 30, then we need to decrease the dose or we need to not use these medicines. So I say that to say it's not that these medicines hurt your kidneys. That's not the case. It's just that if your kidneys don't work well. From the at baseline, the medicines don't work well. So if in a, a normal, healthy individual, you would expect these medicines to lower your A1C maybe 1.5 um, percentage points. In someone who has kidney disease, it may be closer to a half a percentage. So again, um, it's because of the way they work. But as you can see here, when you think about, well, why would they be effective for heart failure? Why would they be effective for these other things? They decrease preload. They decrease afterload. You can get some decrease in blood pressure. You see here arterial stiffness, 
um, volume of blood, body weight. So it has a down arrow, which is true. They can cause a little bit of weight loss, but not really our heavy hitters if um, weight loss is a priority. Um, decrease glucose, decrease insulin resistance. So just a lot of good effects that they can have because of the way they work in the kidneys. Next slide. Okay, so this is where I've taken that chart from the ADA guidelines and kind of put it in my own words and put some things that I thought were important in here. Um, these meds are really effective, um, kind of in that intermediate to high range. And so some of it just depends on how well your kidneys are functioning because of the way they work. And so again, usually you can expect an A1C lowering of about one and a half percentage points. Um, low blood sugar. No, don't cause low blood sugar. So as the medicines we talk about today, none of them do because of the way they work. Um, and so we'll go a little bit more into that with the GLP-1s. Weight change, um, it's a loss. It's moderate. Usually like no more than 5% of someone's body weight, but that's pretty good, right? It's better than weight gain. So there are some medicines that cause weight gain. And then this next column, these next two columns that I've put in red are around the heart benefits. Um, yeah, and Carla said, I've seen some heart failure patients without diabetes on Jardians. Yes. So these medicines are actually approved for heart failure with or without diabetes. So when you look at the heart failure guidelines, these are actually in there as well. As well. And so one of my colleagues used to say, um, we don't ever want to say hit two birds with one stone, one stone, because that's really mean. And why are we throwing stones at birds? So she would say, we can feed two birds with one seed. And so these medicines are kind of like that, right? And so um, if you have um, heart failure or diabetes or both, you can use them. Yep, not, and some unknown user said not required to have diabetes for SGLT2s. Correct. You can use these in people who just have heart failure. Um, the red parts columns that you see here are really related to the heart effects. So I don't know if y'all remember the brand name of the drug was Avandia. The generic name was Rosiglitazone. It was a medicine. It's been, it was been around for a while, but there was a lot of debate around whether it caused heart failure or not. And ever since that medicine came out for any diabetes medicines, they make you test its effect on the heart. Does it increase risk for heart failure? Does it increase risk for heart attacks? Or conversely, does it have a protective effect? So this thing that says MACE here, that stands for Major Adverse Cardiac Events. So heart attacks, you know, is the big one in there. So is there a benefit? And so for two of these meds, there actually is. So for um, canagliflozin and empagliflozin, and I put their brand names below them because I'm making some assumptions that a lot of folks are familiar with the brands since all these are brand name only right now. Um, they do have benefit. And then for heart failure benefit, Almost all of the SGLT2s have benefit. And then if you go to the green section, um, I put a lot of the, this is for diabetic kidney disease. So you actually get benefit from there too. And so you can see from a brand name perspective, Jardiance and Invokana kind of hit all three buckets. Um, I will say Invokana a few years back got some bad press because it was linked with increased risk of lower limb amputation which we'll talk about a little bit in clinical considerations. And so I've seen a lot more Jardiance and Farsiga since then um, just because of that. Um, as far as dosing considerations, there are some renal dosing considerations. But again, it's not because they hurt your kidneys. It's just because they're less effective at lower EGFRs. 
These are oral. So some people, you know, feel very hesitant about injectables. I think for most people, they link that with insulin. And unfortunately, we've had a culture in medicine that's penalized people with insulin and put insulin as a last resort. So a lot of people have this connection with, oh, I'm on insulin. I've got the bad diabetes or, oh, when my you know, mom went on insulin, she lost her leg. So we have a lot of stigma to get around with insulin there. And so for that reason, a lot of people prefer orals. So these are oral. They are expensive. So as you can see here, if you had to pay cash for those, about $500 for a month's supply. And then just some things we should think about. Um, diabetic ketoacidosis has been seen with these medicines, and I think it's important to know that it's even for patients that are euglycemic. So when you think about diabetic ketoacidosis, in my mind, I'm usually like, oh, that's for people who have blood sugars of like 500. Well, not with these medicines because of the way they work. It's actually been seen in folks who have blood sugars in the high 100s. But when you look at the actual numbers compared to placebo, you can see here they're pretty similar and it's pretty rare, but it is just something to keep on your radar. Um, if you have someone who's going to be um, having surgery, they're having a lot of nausea and vomiting, they're going to be fasting a long time, you may want to hold these medicines for three to four days. And that's because of the way they work, because they make you pee out more sugar. Because you pee out more sugar, you get rid of more water, so you're having that diuresis. And it's really easy to have some acute kidney failure or acute kidney injury if you're getting rid of all that fluid, but you're not actually replacing it orally. Um, increased yeast infections. So these are usually mild and treatable. So when I'm counseling people, I usually say, if it's a female, I say, you would do all the things you would do anyway to prevent a yeast infection, right? You're going to wear cotton underwear. You're going to make sure you have good hygiene. For men, it's mostly men that are not circumcised that are going to be a little bit of increased risk. I will say I have had patients before um, who have stopped these because of yeast infections, recurrent yeast infections, but it's but it hasn't been a lot. Um, the other thing that um, comes up in rare reports is necrotizing fasciitis of the perineum or Fournier's gangrene. I, in my career, have only seen that once, and it was not associated with this medicine, but the person did have diabetes, and we did not put him on this medicine because of that. And so the big thing with these are, you know, counseling patients to stay hydrated. Um, if they have heart failure, they're probably using other diuretics like furosemide, terosemide, whatever it happens to be. So it's just really important they stay hydrated because of the way they work. Next slide. Okay. So now we're going to move and kind of shift gears into the GLP-1s and GIP agonists. And these are some of my favorite medicines. So I have a couple of, I think, really cool, maybe geeky stories to tell you about these medicines. So these are ones, when you think of brand names, it's going to be like the Ozempics, the Victozas, the Trulicities, um, all these injectables. So does anybody know... The, well, let me back up. The very first one that was approved was in 2005. It was Exenectide, which was Bietta, later branded as Bidurion, once weekly. Does anyone know where that medicine came from? Anyone want to guess where they found it? It actually comes from the venom dragon, sort of. <laughs> it's called the Gila monster. It's actually a lizard that's found in the Southwest US. And it has, it's, I think it's the only poisonous lizard in the US. But it, this um, compound was isolated from lizard venom. 
And then, so I, I think that happened in like the 1970s and it took a while for them to actually figure out, oh, we could use this drug for diabetes. So in my mind, I'm like, that's really interesting. Why would you ever think that lizard venom could be used as like a diabetes med? But that's actually where these hormones were first isolated was in a lizard. Um, we've come a long way since then, right? So these hormones are ones that we naturally have in our body anyway. But when we have diabetes or when we have obesity, these GLP-1s and GIPs that we naturally have in our body are um, it's suppressed. And so we have lower levels. So I don't know if you've ever had a patient or yourself experience where you sit down to eat your supper, you have a good meal in front of you, you eat it, but you're still hungry, but in your head, you're like, this doesn't make sense because I know I've eaten enough. Well, that's because when people have diabetes, when people have obesity, there's a pathophysiological process that's happening where you don't have enough of these satiating um, hormones. Um, the other thing that I think is really cool and really interesting about these is if y'all have ever, ever had experience with someone who's had like gastric bypass surgery, and then the day after they have their gastric gastric bypass surgery, or even like maybe a week after it, they no longer need their diabetes medicines. And which is, which is really, it's great, but it's like, well, they haven't really had significant weight loss yet. Why have we already cured their diabetes? After gastric bypass surgery, whether it's a Roux-en-Y or a gastric sleeve, these particular hormones called incretins increase naturally in the body back to sort of their normal physiologic levels. And so people think, there's some debate about this, right? But people think a lot of the benefits around even gastric surgeries are because of these hormones. So I just think these are really cool hormones because we found them from lizard venom. They're natural in our body. And some of the even gastric bypass surgeries, um, really some of the benefits coming from these hormones. So on the left-hand side here, you're going to see the GLP-1s. So that was like the exenatide, the bieta, bidurion. Um, we'll talk about um, which medicines fall into that category. But as you can see here, they do lots of really cool things beyond lowering your blood sugar decreasing your gastric emptying. They help your body increase insulin, but they don't cause low blood sugar because of the way they work. So these actually don't really kick in until you eat. They're glucose dependent. So these medicines are glucose dependent, so they're not activated until you're eating and have glucose in your body. Unlike sulfonylureas, so when you think about sulfonylureas, glomeparide, glipizide, those medicines cause your body to release insulin regardless of whether you're eating or not. They're not specific like that, and that's why you're at risk for lows. These medicines don't really cause lows on their own. Um, they go to your brain and tell your brain, hey, you sat down, you ate supper, you've had enough to eat you actually should be satisfied. So they increase that satiety feeling. They decrease um, your food intake. Um, they decrease, of course, hyperglycemia because that's what they do. And then in your liver, they actually increase insulin sensitivity. So that's a big thing with type 2 diabetes, right, is that we just lose our sensitivity to that insulin. So these increase that. And then when you flip it and you look at the green side here, which is the glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide receptor agonists, we're going to call those GIPs. Um, we only have one medicine right now that targets that, and that's terzepatide, which is Mountjaro or Zepbound. But it, it complements the GLP-1 in lots of ways. So when you look here, we're still hitting the central nervous system, still hitting the pancreas. Um, 
but it's doing it um, in a way that's complementary. So in our body, we have lots of compensatory mechanisms. Like you shut one out, the other one kicks in. Well, here you're actually hitting or feeding two birds with one seed. Um, and then it also helps with a lot of the um, sensitivity to insulin in your skeletal muscle and in your fat, which are also really important. And Catherine said, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the compounded versions, like semaglutide with B6 compounded instead of name brands. So yes, I, I can touch on that a little bit. This is the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you would like more information about this and other episodes, you can head over to movetovaluepodcast.com to check out all of the available resources. If you're interested in continuing to hear about value-based care and how it impacts you, you can sign up for our email notifications or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, we would love it if you would share the Move to Value podcast across your networks and leave a rating or review. Thanks for listening.